Good morning, good morning. We're going to start Romans chapter 1 today. Are you guys excited about Romans chapter 1? I'm excited about it. Romans is obviously profoundly important. Many theologians think that Romans falls right after Acts because the church recognized its significance. You think St. Augustine was saved as he read from Romans. Martin Luther was saved as he taught through Romans. John Wesley was saved as he listened to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Romans has been profoundly important for generations. And so we're going to go through just through chapter 1 in this series. um, But we are going to take small bites this time around and try to really chew on it and make sure we've got it ingrained in our heart. Again, it is, it is a wonderfully important book. Um, and, and Paul's longest and most carefully thought out epistle. Let's pray over the word and we'll get, we'll get going here. Lord, we come to your word with excitement, with reverence, with adoration. Lord, we live in a day where social media or the news cycle becomes our focus and we tend to chew on that, Lord, and that becomes the bread of our life. And we've all learned that that leads to frustration and anxiety. We want to be a people who chew on the word of God. Be our daily bread. Lord, we want to chew on the cud of your word. We want our hearts to be saturated with the truth of this inerrant, inspired scripture. So mold us, change us, refine us. Holy Spirit, we just declare right now that this is your time. You lead, you interrupt, or we're willing to go wherever you desire to lead. And we trust you with all of our hearts. We love you with all our strength and all our might. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Everybody say amen. 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 Now, if you let me nerd out for about 10 minutes, I'm going to go somewhere. Michael Ward is an Oxford scholar. He is a C.S. Lewis scholar, meaning his doctorate and most of his study is on C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis's um, works on his life and his works. Michael Ward lived in the Kilns, which is C.S. Lewis's house for years as he was studying. He, he oversees a society that kind of preserves the work of C.S. Lewis, the, the life of C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a book called Planet Narnia, and I've been listening to piddling with this all week. I just really got in nerd mode this week. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Uh, the Narnia stories, um, they are, there were seven books. They are a bit random. Literary scholars oftentimes call them hodgepodge because you see multiple elements coming, elements coming to pass. The stories don't feel cohesive in that, you know, the stories will have totally different characters. The only common character between every story is Aslan. They're not quite cohesive. Um, and so literary scholars have puzzled over C.S. Lewis's works for some time. And, and there's a movement of people who say, well, the Narnia stories were kind of C.S. Lewis's um, just having fun, sitting down and write. He wasn't being that intentional. Their children's stories don't overanalyze them. But... All of the individuals who know C.S. Lewis say that C.S. Lewis does nothing random. C.S. Lewis's mind is um, incredibly creative. He, he, he loves to hide imagery behind things that, that may even seem plain. And so there are seven Narnian books. And again, they feel disjointed and random. Lots of theories that float around about why he wrote seven books, why, why the number seven. And, and there, 
there are lots of theories. I won't go through them for you, but, but many theories. But scholarship has pretty much concluded that Michael Ward's theory is correct, and his theory um, really brings the Narnian stories into a perspective where you realize that they're not random at all, but they're actually so intentional and organized that if once you see the pattern, you can't unsee the pattern. And so Lewis, in this kind of whimsical, you know, cheeky way, he allowed everyone to perceive his writings as kind of laid back, nonchalant, not that intentional, when all the while there was this incredibly strategic pattern underneath that when you saw it, you realized that, that all of the stories were not um, lazy or hodgepodgey, but all of his life, he just allowed people to think that, and he seemed to have no problem with people thinking it. Now, Michael Ward was reading a poem called The Planets, where C.S. Lewis talks about, through this poem, he, he talks about the seven planets of the medieval time. Now, these seven planets, they exist in Greek literature. They were really important. Remember, C.S. Lewis is a medieval scholar. He, he's, a, he's a literature scholar in general. He um, fluid in Greek, Latin, um, grew up on the Odyssey, those things. And so in medieval literature, the seven planets, which they considered the sun and the moon a planet, um, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, um, those basic planets that you can see with the eye, in medieval literature, those planets all carried themes. Now, those themes were um, filled with in, in ancient mythology, but but uh, you find a lot of authors kind of toying with the themes, um, and, and you actually see these themes come to pass in the etymology of our words. Let me paint the idea for you just for a second. Um, the word lunatic, lunacy, um, it comes from the same the root word luna, the moon. And so in, in English language, when you use the word lunatic or lunacy, you're playing off the idea that the moon makes people crazy in ancient literature, okay? The moon, think werewolves, the moon comes out. And so lunatic, lunacy, the moon, C.S. Lewis, so in the planets, for instance, he talks about how, how, um, how inconsistent the moon is. One day it's red and orange and one day it's blue and sometimes it's huge and sometimes it's little. And that's the way throughout the English language that you would define a crazy person. You're moon-like. You're inconsistent. One day you're this way and next day you're this way. You're a lunatic. And so when C.S. Lewis wrote the book, um, The Silver Chair, The Silver Chair is one of the Narnian stories, and The Silver Chair, um, the, there's a character called the Black Knight, and the Black Knight tells the 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 adventurers in Narnia, that every night when the moon comes up, he has to be tied to a chair because when the moon comes up, he goes crazy. And so every night he's tied to the chair. But what they realize by the end of the story is that when the moon comes up and he goes crazy, he's actually not crazy when he's tied to the chair. Those are actually the moments that he's saying. And he's the prince that they've been searching for. And Lewis is playing with this idea in the silver chair of lunacy in the moon. And he's showing that sometimes people in the world who seem the craziest are actually the sanest. And so, for instance, in Acts 26, verse 24, Festus says to Paul with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad, the King James said. Or in other words, um, Festus says to Paul, you are so learned that you're crazy, you're insane. But Paul's actually not insane. He's the only sane person in the room. And so Lewis plays with this idea of lunacy in the silver chair, silver moon-like, and, and he's moving through the planets um, to show these kind of themes in ancient literature coming to pass in his Narnian story as he exposes biblical principles. Now, I said all that to say this. This is what I'm trying to say. When you look at the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
which was the first Narnian story that he wrote and was the, the most significant, obviously. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis wrote it, and he sat down with Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the um, Lord of the Rings. He sits down with Tolkien, and he reads Tolkien the first several chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Tolkien hated it. Hated it. And was vocal about the fact that he hated it. Tolkien actually said that he never finished the Narnian series because he gave up on trying to read such hodgepodgey literature. So Lewis and Tolkien are best friends, and Tolkien's very vocal about he, how he hates the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is what he hated about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You see in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the fawn tumness. And then you see centaurs. And you see all these different figures of, of ancient literature. And it's, and it's hodgepodgey to him. It's not cohesive. I think the Lord of the Rings is very cohesive and meticulous. Um, and what he hated the most, okay, what he absolutely hated the most about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was that Father Christmas shows up in the story. What is Santa Claus doing in a story? Um, and and, and not, it wasn't only Tolkien. It was all of Lewis's friends. They hated it. They despised it. They begged him to take Father Christmas out of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, um, Lewis refused to take it out, and he never justified why it was in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But when you understand the pattern, and this, again, is thoroughly accepted at this point, that, that to Lewis, the most significant planet was the planet Jupiter in ancient literature. And the Jupiter is... Um, it carries with it the idea of, oh, I'm losing the word in my head. Um, in, in ancient literature, Jove is the god of Jupiter, and, and the word Jove is where we get the word jovial. And so Jupiter carries with it the idea of kingly joy and peace. And, and so in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis is showing you that it's only through the slaying of the Lion of Judah, it's only through Aslan's death that you'll ever have forgiveness and real joy. And so in the poem, The Planets, he says, the winter has passed and forgiveness has come. And so um, think again, Narnia is about winter and the winter ending and us having joy in the forgiveness of the Lamb. And so he's showing that, that, that true jovialness, true joy, and true peace. Lewis loved to describe himself as jovial. He was a fat man with big cheats and a loud laughter. That true jovialness, through true joy and peace and love for life is only found in the blood of Jesus when you come to receive forgiveness of your trespasses. And when you understand that, then you go, oh, Santa calls Father Christmas is the most jovial figure in all of history. And so it wasn't inconsistent or hodgepodge. It was perfectly intentional. And Lewis wanted Father Christmas in the story because he was fat with big red cheeks and with a loud laugh and he comes with gifts. And the reason he plays with Christmas so much because Christmas joy is how we feel when we really come to the gospel. Now, C.S. Lewis never told anyone this. The pattern is found in his manuscripts of the, Oxford still has early manuscripts of the Narnian stories. The pattern's there and he changes words to hide it. He never told anyone this and C.S. Lewis was very fond in his, in his writing of the author's right to veil what's happening in the narrative and to leave mystery. And he was very fond of the kind of Socratic mode of teaching where you just lay stuff out and see if the reader will ever find the mystery. So he never talked about it. He never justified himself. In this very cheeky way, he allowed everyone to think that he was stupid for putting Father Christmas in the story when in reality they were too stupid to see what he was doing. And he just sat back in his overweight, loud laugh way and giggled while all his critics said, this is inconsistent and hodgepodgey. Now I said all that to say this. 
what the scriptures teach us is that there's an author who is writing all of history. And he has no responsibility to explain to us why Father Christmas comes in the story. The scholars, the, the modern humanistic worldview will tell you life is random and the evolutionary theory, this is all just a random sequence of events and nothing really matters. We're bumping and into each other, big bags of dust, trying to make something out of our life. And in a, in a modern humanistic worldview, you need to make something out of yourself because you've got one shot. You've got one, like make something happen because life is really meaningless unless you take life by the horns. But in the worldview of Romans chapter 1, one, life is not meaningless. It's profoundly meaningful. And although you might not know why Father Christmas is in the story, it's not because the author is unintentional. It's just because you're too stupid to see what he's doing. And so in Paul's worldview, his life is not meaningless. And I'll say to you today, in an hour of great political turmoil, when everyone's frustrated and biting their nails, my life is not meaningless. I was set apart for a day such as this. And it may seem like there's just this chaos happening in the universe, but sometimes chaos is exactly unfolding in God's wisdom and plan, and we're just too ignorant to see that the chaos, the hodgepodginess, is actually wonderfully intentional as God tells his story and calls all of the nations to see that the Son of God is the only hope and that the cross of Calvary is our redemption and that the blood of the Lamb really does change everything. Paul saw God as a highly creative author who was weaving together his narrative. And Paul's greatest joy in life was that God would call him and set him apart and use him in his own narrative to exalt his son, Jesus. So for Paul, all things, Romans chapter 8, are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You need to be washed with that word today. I know there's turmoil on your cell phone. You need to turn your cell phone off. All things are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This is not turmoil, meaningless turmoil. I, I, I do not have a worldview of meticulous determinism that says that everything that comes to pass is God's exact will. I do think that evil exists. I do think that hell has her way at times. But remember that even when hell has her way and it feels like, like God is defeated, God, the cross will feel like defeat for a moment. But give it three days and what looked like defeat is actually the most triumphant victory of all time. And so, and so there, there are moments in your life where it may feel like defeat. It may feel like chaos. It may feel like hodgepodge, randomness. What are you doing, God? But when you look from the other side, when you get the, the planet Narnia perspective and you can see what he's doing, then you'll say that all things work together for my good. And I don't have a shepherd who's random and hodgepodge. I have a shepherd who is so much wiser than any other being in all of creation. And, and my shepherd is leading me to still waters, to greener pastures. He gives me abundant life. He causes my cup to run over. It's not random. My life is meaningful, not meaningless. We need to be sure of that. We need to teach our kids that. We need to instill that in our own lives so that we're not thrown into anxiety in seasons like this. Now, let's read Romans 1 through 7, and we'll explore this concept a little more. You guys okay with me so far? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what you need to know about the book of Romans is this. Paul didn't plant the Roman church. He'll tell us this further. The Roman church is not a church that he's planted. He's never visited the Roman church. He knows some believers who are in the Roman church, but he knows them from interactions in other areas. So Paul, at this point in his life, has never been to Rome. He's never visited the Roman church. And so this is his first introduction to the Roman church. And so there's a bit of um, uh, formality to the entire book of Romans. There's there's not a lot of... um, personal interaction like you're writing to a good friend. It feels a little more formal and official because Paul is not writing to close friends. He's writing to people for the most part whom he's never met. And so his introduction is profoundly important because in in ancient Greek and Roman literature, when when you wrote to someone, you needed to introduce yourself and kind of explain who you are, your authority, what... why we should listen to you, in other words. And so the introduction of Romans is really important. First, Paul, a servant of Christ. I'd like to spend the rest of our time today just talking about that single phrase. We're not going to work through Romans 1 that slowly, though, okay? So you can take a deep breath. Paul, a servant of Christ. Again, in ancient Greco-Roman world, it's very important that you introduce yourself. Listen to how Paul introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Christ. A servant. He doesn't say Paul, the great teacher, the great rabbi, the highly intellectual, the, the trained doctor. Paul, a servant of Christ. And that, to Paul, is a glorious title and the greatest privilege of his life, to serve Jesus, his master, to be used in the king's service. Now, the word, the Greek word here, doulos, is very common throughout the New Testament. You need to be familiar with it. The word is sometimes translated slave. It's rendered slave. It can be rendered bondservant. It could just be servant, depending on the context. But the word um, essentially means it's it's emphasizing the master-servant relationship. So Paul introduces himself as Paul, either a bondservant, a servant, or a slave of Christ, a slave of my master. Peter and John are beaten for the gospel, as you read through Acts. And they rejoice at being beaten for the gospel. They rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for Messiah. Paul viewed his life, the joy of his life, the privilege of his life, the place where he found fulfillment and abundance and meaning was all wrapped up in this single phrase. I am a slave to Jesus. Until you learn to find your meaning and your purpose in that phrase, your life will feel empty. But when you surrender, you really surrender, you come to the cross, you get on your stinking knees, and you sell everything you have. I've got no hopes, no dreams, no ambitions outside of you. When you really declare him to be your master, then all of your life comes to make sense. The first thing Paul says about himself over and over is, I am a slave to Jesus. And that is not a comment he makes out of this kind of humdrum, I wish I wasn't, but it's a comment he makes with joy and privilege in life. I am his doulos. I am his slave. Are you his slave this morning? Do you obey him? Do you live to please him? Is life really about exalting Jesus and doing his bidding? 
Until you get there, you'll never know real joy. Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. A a servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle. Now, Paul's apostleship is not something that he's conjured up in his own thinking. He doesn't have this high view of himself, and so he deems himself apostle, and he sets out on this kind of lone ranger posture to establish his authority. No, remember that Paul is set apart in Antioch. Now, Antioch, um, at the point in Scripture, Acts 15, 16, you move from there, Antioch has become the largest church. It's outgrown the church of Jerusalem. And Antioch has, is, is diverse, and they're doing more missions work. They're doing more from the gospel than Jerusalem at this point. Jerusalem is primarily Jews. They're, they're, this, this may be an inference, but some scholars would say that they're older and they're poorer, and they, they're a little more traditional, obviously. They carry their Judaism, some of their traditions. But the church of Antioch is young and vibrant and growing and energetic, and Paul is a part of the church at Antioch. And now Acts um, chapter 13, verse 2 says, While they at Antioch were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So as Paul taught in the local church, he served the community there. There was a growing recognition of his called and preparedness. The scripture says in Acts 13.1 that there were prophets in Antioch and there were teachers in Antioch. And it listed Paul as one of the great teachers of that congregation. So as they worship and fast as a community, as a congregation, the Holy Spirit speaks to the body and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them. Then they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and commission them to do apostolic work, to carry the gospel to new regions. And so when Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle, he's not saying, I think that I'm called to be an apostle. I think that I should be authoritative. I think that I'm a better teacher than you. No, Paul was a part of a local congregation that heard from the Holy Spirit, who laid hands on him and set him apart. It was affirmed by the body of Christ. He calls himself the least of the apostles. He is not after glory or self-exaltation. He seeks God's will. In what way is God calling me to participate in his gospel? We need to make sure that we're not self-serving. There is no place for arrogance in the church. There's no place for pride in the church. One of the greatest problems we have in modern Western Christianity is we've made the pulpit and worship and leading in the church about our egos. And there's no place for egoism in the gospel. We need to be sure that we're dead, that we're surrendered. We need to say to Christ, I'll go anywhere, I'll say anything. What have you called me to? So Paul's not saying, I'm superior to you because I think so. He's saying, no, I'm a servant of the church, an apostle, because God called me, the church commissioned me, and I am living in his call. I am writing to you under the commission of the Holy Spirit. Now, then he says, I was set apart for this work. Set apart for this work. In Galatians chapter 1, chapter 2, Paul tells us that he was set apart from his mother's womb. That's playing off Jeremiah, saying that he was, he was set apart, he was sanctified to the Lord from his mother's womb. David said in the Psalms that he was set apart from his mother's womb. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his work on Romans 1, he overemphasizes the point, and, and I'd like to lay it out for you really quickly. From my mother's womb, I was called, set apart to this work. Think about Paul's early life. 
He's a Jew, Philippians chapter 3, a Jew of Jews of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, as to the law, blameless. So he's a Jew trained under Gamaliel, who is the, the highest intellect of the day. And so Paul speaks Hebrew. He speaks Aramaic. He knows the, the, the Old Testament better than anyone. He's trained in Jewish ritual. So Paul says, from my birth, God ordained my life so that my early years would be bombarded with studying of the scriptures. From birth, my entire life was about studying the Hebrew scriptures. Now, that's one point. Second point that you can make and that you shouldn't make is that there is no doubt that Paul is the premier intellect of his day. Paul's not just a smart man. He's one of those smart men who is far smarter than anyone else, right? There is a smartness that is not, that doesn't come from study, right? There are some people who will know more than I, they'll, they'll forget more than I ever learned, right? There are some people who are just gifted that way. So Paul is gifted, extremely gifted intellectually. Now, Paul, where is he from? He's from Tarsus. What you should know is that Tarsus in the day was a highly influential cultural city. Some scholars say that Tarsus was as influential to Greek culture as Athens was. And so Paul grew up in a Greek culture, and he also spoke Greek. And he understood Greek thought. And so throughout Romans, throughout Acts, Paul is going to quote Greek philosophers and Greek uh, traditions and so um, it wasn't just that Paul was a Jew of Jews. It wasn't just that Paul was a highly intellectual man. It was also that he was raised in a, in a region of great Greek culture. He spoke Greek. He understood Greek. And so that when he goes to Greek cities and he goes to the world to preach the gospel, he has a great understanding of their life and of their beliefs because he grew up in the middle of it. Paul was a Roman citizen. How was he a Roman citizen? Do you remember? He says, I inherited it from my parents. Roman citizenship was not something um, that was common. It wasn't something that you treated flippant. Um, it, would, it would be what we call a great privilege to be a Roman citizen. So how many times do we see Paul using his Roman citizenship to get out of chains? God, this is what Paul is saying. God, in his wisdom, as he writes the story of Paul's life, sets him apart from birth. He causes all these little intimate fractures and pieces of Paul's life to come together and to shape him for a particular work. God's hand is stitching something all through Paul's life. So Paul thought he was being trained to be a great Pharisee, a great teacher of the law. But God is allowing him to learn Pharisaical law and teaching because the primary thing Paul's going to do in his ministry is he's going to argue to Jews that Gentiles are allowed in the gospel. The entire book of Galatians, Romans, is Paul saying to Jews, no, in Christ, Gentiles have a place because your Jewish ethnicity is not how you receive salvation. It is in faith and faith alone in the shed blood of Messiah on the cross of Calvary. So all of Paul's life, he's arguing against those who exist in the training in which he was trained up in. Can you guys follow that line of thought? I know there are multiple things happening at once. So Paul said, I was set apart from birth. From birth, God was knitting together my life. Now, again, Paul could, you know, on a shipwreck say, oh, my life is meaningless and pointless, and God, why would you allow this to happen? And oh, what misery, why am I abandoned on this island? Or Paul could heal the sick people and preach the gospel on the island because nothing in his life was meaningless. Y'all ain't listening to what I got to say today. Set apart for the work. 
All of Paul's life was preparation for this call. He'll use his Greek philosophy. He'll use his his understanding of Hebrew. He's constantly switching languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. He's even using his name, Paul and Saul, in two different settings. I know you were all taught that Paul changed his name to Paul after the blinding light thing. That's not true. Paul was his Greek name. And so in different settings, he's functioning under different, uh, in different names because he has a diverse background. So what is Paul saying? In God's sovereignty, he shaped me for this task. In God's wisdom, by his spirit, he called me, he commissioned me to this purpose. I'm a servant of this God. He's saying my life is fleshing out as I obey God and he knits together the story that he wants to knit together. Now, Paul is called to serve Christ The details of his life work to equip for his calling. God shapes his life for the purpose in order to preach the gospel of Christ Jesus, whom he promised through the prophets. Now, be a little heady for a second. So on one hand, Paul says, from my mother's womb, the meticulous details of my life were preparation for this call. And then he begins to say, in order that I serve Christ Jesus, who God promised beforehand... The the Messiah that God promised from the beginning, who God God brought validity to by raising him from the dead, who God marked with his power, who has declared that there's no other name but the name of Jesus. Um, God, from the beginning of time, was establishing this narrative by which he would redeem humanity through the shed blood of his own son. From the foundation of the earth, the Lamb of God was slain. It was always God's purpose. It was always God's intention to redeem the nations by the blood of Jesus. And so there's a large narrative, Paul says, that God is working out and it is salvation through the blood of Christ Jesus. Now, in this large narrative that God is working out, he's also at the same time working out the narrative of my life so that the narrative of my life comes under his larger narrative and supports what God is doing. God is writing something. God is the author who does not need your permission. He does not need to explain to you what he is doing. You just sit back and watch. It's not your job to understand all of the details. It's your job to enjoy the the paths of righteousness that the shepherd is leading you down. Paul did not find Christ. Christ found Paul. Right? Paul Paul wouldn't say, I found God as I sought him. Paul was persecuting Christians, looking to kill them, and Christ Jesus knocked him off his horse, right? And so it's not this, I did, I, I'm leading, I found. It's no, I was, I was a passive part in this thing. I was going to p- pursue Christians to persecute him, and God just kicked me down. Why? Because he wanted to. Because God, from the entirety of my life, had been working to use me in this way. God interrupted my plans to establish his plans. And God is not passively hoping that his plans will come to pass. That, that's called... Um, oh, Lord, I just the, the word slipped in my brain. So who, what's wrong with my brain today? Somebody get me a coffee. Um, I'm losing the word. Uh, I'll say this. We don't believe that the end is open. Open theists. That's the word I was looking for. Say thank you, Jesus. We're not open theists, and you need to be really sure of this, okay? Listen to me just for a second. For the most part, our movement is Westland. 
Arminian. We, we, for the most part, come from a Wesleyan tradition. And, and I wouldn't call myself a Calvinist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the extreme, everything can be taken to extremes, right? The extreme of Wesleyan theology, the extreme um, of Arminianism leads to open theism. And what open theism says is that we don't really know how things are going to end. Because God has given man free will. Man can pervert the story. Open theism says because God gave us free will, whether or not the gospel goes forth is primarily put on our backs. And so the story could end the wrong way. You need to be sure. I don't believe that for a sliver of a moment. Because what God says will come to pass. His word is sure and true. And what the scripture says is that there's a coming day when Jesus will place his foot on the Mount of Olives and the mountains will split. What the scripture says is there's a coming day when Jesus will establish his authority over the nations and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not open theists. We don't believe that our lives are random and meaning, and, and we've got to make something happen. No, we are, we are believers who believe in a God who is authoring the intricate details of my life. And at best, I am, I am a servant to him. I'm living an obedient life to him, but I am not trying to make something out of myself. I am saying with the apostles, with the prophets, put me on the potter's wheel and shape me, God, and make out of me what you want to make out of me. I don't want to do more than he's called me to do. I don't want to do less than he's called me to do. I want to find the niche and the purpose, and I want to allow him to shape and mold my life. And then Paul says this, I'm to bring about the obedience of faith in the nations, to the nations. The obedience of faith. And that's a phrase that people play with quite a bit. I need to hurry, huh? Um, the obedience of faith. G- Jesus says, this is what it is to obey God, to believe in me. So it could be that Paul is referring to faith is the ultimate obedience. Faith is the only way by which we're saved. But most, most commentators agree that the term obedience of faith is playing with the Great Commission where Jesus tells us to go and preach the gospel and teach all the nations to do what? To obey. There's, there's a faith that leads to obedience. And so Paul says, my life is divinely orchestrated, caught up in God's story, and all of my life now is about bringing the nations to obedience of faith, to serve the master Jesus. And now we've circled back to the doulos idea. My life is about teaching the nations to surrender, to come to a place where Jesus really is master, and to worship with that kind of exuberant praise. Paul's ultimate aim is to bring the nations to really worship Jesus. We're not, we're not open theists. We're, not, we're also not antinomian. Antinomian means without law, that you can live however you want to live. No, this is what we'll get into in the weeks to come. We have a truth. We have a sure truth that God has given us. When it, as it pertains to morality and ethics and call, the scriptures lay out a plain morality. You can either obey it or not, right? And so obedience of faith teaching the world to obey what I have commanded, that encompasses the idea of morality. That encompasses the ideas of sexuality. That encompasses the idea of how you, how you think about economics. There is a law, and, and, and 
with the New Testament, certainly certain parts of the ceremonial law are fulfilled in Christ. The sacrificial system is fulfilled in Christ. But the moral and ethical law is not overthrown. Rather, it's expounded upon. Jesus teaches us what real holiness looks like. And so as a people, we are, we are servants of Christ who are desiring holiness in order to obey him and to worship him. Does, your, does how we live sexually matter? Yes, of course it does. We're either obedient to Christ concerning our sexual life or we're not. We're either obedient to Christ concerning the way that we treat one another or we're not. We're either obedient to Christ in the way that we, um, the way that we use alcohol or we're not. There, there is, a, there is a, a law laid down, the law of love, which is primarily about loving God and loving people, but, but it matters the way that you live. Capiche? Seth, come out here before me. Let's get ready to close. I want to say this. Again, when, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, um, this, this week in particular got weird, okay? Um, and as Christians, we need to make sure, again, that we are acting like Christians. Number one, that matters. And we need to make sure that our, our lives aren't caught up in the immediacy of the news cycle. Do you realize that no other generation could pick up their smartphone and know exactly what was happening in all of the world? Now, what's happened is we're, we're beginning to live this way. We're, we're pulling out the smartphone to see what's happening in the news. And we're either happy with what we see or we're frustrated with what we see. And we're going to live out of that place. Now, when you begin to do that all the time, what, what becomes your daily bread or your sustenance is what you see on the phone. And the phone either leads you to joy or it leads you to frustration. And what we've just witnessed this week was an extreme amount of frustration from both sides. And what we've seen is that many believers are acting out of a place of flesh and they're acting like we have to have control and we have to make everything happen rather than living from a place, you know, you know, believers in the old time, they didn't have a phone in their pocket where they could read the news all the time. Most of them actually carried the Bible with them. Imagine that. And when they had a moment, a free moment waiting on a train or a bus and waiting for work, they didn't look out the phone to the, whatever their favorite news cycle people are to try to see what's happening in the world, to see whether they're going to be mad or not. They pulled out the scriptures. And what they read in that scripture became nourishment for their soul. And we've got to get to the place where we live from a biblical perspective and we recognize that this world is always going to be chaotic until Jesus returns. And we recognize that my greatest work, the greatest purpose of my life, is not primarily political. My greatest purpose in life is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in every venue that I find myself in. My greatest work in life is to disciple and train my children, teach them to rightly divide the word of truth, bathe them in the truths of the scripture. My greatest work in life is, is, is radical worship. It's to not get on the phone and then get really angry and then throw the thing down and then get on the social media and tell everybody how I feel. My greatest goal in life is to open the word, see the beauty and majesty and wonder of Christ Jesus in the word, and put my face in the carpet and cry out with all of heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was by God. He is today and he is to come. I'm caught up in his timeline and his purposes. 
So if you could allow me with a little bit of pastoral authority for, the, for one minute to say this, quit, okay? Stop, 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 stop. Pick up your word. Allow it to be your daily bread. You can live as if your life's meaningless and everything's chaotic. I'm not living that way. My life ain't meaningless. Every day I get out of bed, the scripture says that he's ordained all of my days. He's numbered the hairs on my head. I don't care what's going on out there. It can never, it has no ability to ever thwart my purposes on the earth because my purposes are wrapped up in God's divine wisdom and sovereignty and plan. And that plan is beautiful eyes have not seen, nor have ears heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. And so this morning, if you'd stand to your feet, we're going to get ready to close. I'm going to ask you to put off the burden of stress and let's put on the, the yoke, which is light and easy. And let's worship as if he's worthy of worship just for a moment. So go ahead and just extend your hands. Lord, give us freedom in this place. We ask for liberty in this place. I come against stress and anxiety and fear and nail biting. And Lord, we thank you that our lives are caught up in your plan and your purposes. And that all the time, Lord, when things look purposeless, it's just because we're too dumb to see what you're actually doing. Hallelujah. Just begin to praise him for a moment. Hallelujah. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. Seth, lead us for a moment. I surrender. Hallelujah. Let's worship just for a moment. You take us to hidden and free. And you turn it for good. You turn it for good. Come on, sing it with conviction this morning.
So altar ministers, if you get in place, we'll get ready to wrap down. But I just want to say this. If, if you would say that's you and there is no shame in this house. If you would say, I am burdened with sorrow. I felt like my life is chaos. This season has really affected me. I want to ask you to come to the altars before you leave today. And we're going to believe that you get set free. We're going to, the scripture says, who the son sets free is free indeed. That there's, where the spirit of God is, there's liberty. And so if you need liberty this morning, again, no shame. I want to ask you to come to the altars before you leave. There was a few words. If you are um, needing wisdom, maybe you're you're in a situation where you've got to respond. You need wisdom. We want to ask you to come forward. If there are any who have been praying for the baptism of the Spirit or the prayer language, we want to ask you to come forward. We'd love to pray for you this morning. And as always, if, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, man, today's the day. All you have to do is bow your knee and confess his lordship. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday or the day before. The blood of Jesus is perfectly su- sufficient. It is potent, man, to wash you and to make you clean. So if you're here today and you never give your life to Jesus, man, come get in the altar. We'd love to talk to you about how you can be sure that you belong to him and your life fleshes out in his perfect plan. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you for freedom and liberty and peace and joy. We thank you that where your spirit is, there's real life. You came to give us life and life abundantly. You came to give us an easy and light yoke. So we receive it this morning in Jesus' name. We receive it this morning in Jesus' name. We love you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The altars are open. If you want prayer, we want to ask you to come forward before you go. If not, you're dismissed and we love you. We pray you have a wonderful week. Live as if your life is meaningful.